Welcome to Sports, Pets, and Politics with your host, Ben Husson, and me, Sean Hannon. Welcome to episode nine of Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Thank you for joining us. I am joined again, as always, with my uh, spectacular co-host, Ben Husong. I thought you were going with esteemed that time. Esteemed. Spectacular works. Esteemed, spectacular co-host, Ben Husong. Ben, how was your weekend? It was fantastic. Anything exciting? Anything uh, noteworthy? Anything you put on the calendar to uh, save to celebrate for Gonna a level year from now? Going to level with you. We may have violated a few of the local restrictions on uh, guests from out of town, but we did quarantine everybody all weekend. Okay, good. No, no rules broken. Well, I'm not going to grill you on that. Um, uneventful weekend for me. Uh, another great weather weekend here in upstate New York. So it's, it's hard to thing. hard to complain about too much there. Um, Nothing uh, Nothing else of local notes. Let's move right into sports here, sir. Um, yes. We have some sports actually to talk about at least a little bit. We got another PGA week under our belts. We got another winner, Justin Thomas, win the G- WGC this week. It's a big one. Um, he, he's very good. Um, you know, now we get this as kind of like the uh, warm-up for the PGA next weekend, which is uh, the first of the re-jumbled uh, – uh, calendar of the majors, but now this is going to be the first one out of the shoot here. So we get the uh, PGA Championship. Um, that should be very exciting, and I look forward to uh, losing a bunch of money on DraftKings. So obviously, if you were only going to have one golf major this year, unanimously we would have wanted the PGA. Forget the Open, forget the Masters. Well, the I mean, they're, Open. They're, our governor, your governor, uh, said the U.S. Open is going to happen this year. I so uh, I expect that to continue to be the case, and uh, the Masters has just moved to November. So. I'm not sure how the flowers are going to look in uh, Augusta in November, but I bet it's still still pretty. I so. bet you it's beautiful still. And but yeah, uh, but I, anyway, the first of the majors next week. Um, maybe I'll try to do a uh, uh, a PGA Golf DraftKings uh, thing uh, video for us this week. Right. Uh, in other news, uh, in my world of uh, making and losing money, Bitcoin Bitcoin went up. Um, it has been going up kind of steadily here for like the last month. Um, it actually reached 12,200-ish uh, the other day, which is probably the highest it's been in well over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately crashed back to about 10.5, bounced back up from there to about 11.2, which is where it's at now. I bet I can uh, actually just find it. Oh, look, we do have it. There we go. 11.382, still moving up. Yeah, but I, you uh, can see why. Here, I'm going to show you real quickly. I don't know if oh, you can't see here, Ben. Sorry, but let me show everybody else here. Um, it's okay. I'm only the the, the last month. You can see, see here. It started going up. It started going up and uh, has come down. Tried to test back at about ten eight multiple times here. Ten eight, ten nine, and it bounced off that. It kind of fell back here off that crash from 12.2 back to about that 10.5, bounced right back in the 10.9, and now it's bouncing again, and we're still moving at 11.382. So yeah. I'm excited that it's been moving up. Um, you know, I kind of add little bits little bits here and there uh, to my uh, little Bitcoin winnings sure. uh, here and there, so it was exciting. So you are one of the more knowledgeable people whoa, on, whoa, whoa. on okay. crypto and okay. Bitcoin that I, that I personally okay. know. All right. well, I, I'm not like going to say you're an okay. expert, but you know more than the average bear. How's that? Okay. So do me a favor. Take 
90 seconds and explain a little bit about everybody's heard of it. Not many people know what it is, what it is and why you think it is such a great thing. Well, so again, there is a white paper out there that is very short, very easy to read, very easy to comprehend that is out there. It's basically, and we'll share it later. Yeah, I could do that. Uh, Bitcoin is basically a, a computer program. Um, it's, it's decentralized. There's, it's just a protocol. So once you, you know, the, the white paper came with a link, you, you download the link, you, you work the, you download the program onto your computer and the computers start talking to each other. And within that communication, there is a protocol that creates Bitcoin, um, which are these, uh, digital currencies. Um, it's I'm going to let around. with you. I think I'm more confused by it now than when you started, but let's well, keep going I'm just saying when you, when you, when you download this, it's a, it's a, it's a, there's not a, uh, there's not nobody running Bitcoin. There is nobody, there's no headquarters. There is nothing that is, is you could say is Bitcoin other than it is a computer software. Right. So it, it exists only as if all these computers have this program and they continue to run it, then it exists as long as that happens. And ideally it's a currency. That was the white paper was, this is birthed out of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis um, where Satoshi Nakamoto is the uh, love that dude <laughs> or dudes who knows or do that. It's a, it's either a person or a combination of people. Nobody really knows who this person is who distributed this white paper, but um, it was a way to decentralize or take money away from governments and central banks. Um, this was a designed to be a money for the people or the people who downloaded the software. Right. So this was a, there's a program in there that, that rewards people who are, are Mining. running these math programs and be that secures the network. And these people, you know, there's millions of people now using this network and the volume of users creates a security and a comfort using the Bitcoin as a means of currency. And it's, it's still young. It's only, you know, I'm not even 10 years old, I don't think. And it has been largely adopted in the last five years um, by some of the institutional uh, investors. Uh, so you can actually, you know, see this on CNBC or Fox Business. You'll see Bitcoin being uh, traded and, um, you know, price action and price moves and people making and losing money on, on Bitcoin now. Um, but ideally, I think in the true sense of the white paper, it was meant to be a digital currency, a way to a to be a reserve currency of the world so that all other currencies would move off of Bitcoin. Okay. Does that help at all? I mean, yeah, I think that if I can oversimplify. It's very technical. I, I'm sorry. That's okay. If I can oversimplify. It's, Go ahead. Uh, so it's meant to be a means of conducting transactions, so we'll call it a currency. I know it's sure. not an exact translation, but for those of us who speak mostly layman terms, it's meant to be a currency. Correct. All right, so from that, people get concerned when they hear there is no central government or central bank behind it because then it's subject to more manipulation is the fear. In reality, uh, and let me just go into, there's this blockchain technology underneath Bitcoin, and this is the people that are working out these complicated math calculations through their computers in order to create Bitcoin. So the idea is it's actually very secure and is not very subject to direct it manipulation. Has, it has never been compromised right. since its inception. It can't be because if the math doesn't work, once the blockchain is created, if the math doesn't work, it can't move forward. Correct. So it has to be settled. And therefore, it is a, it is a worldwide ledger. And right. the ledgers are updating instantaneously every, every second. second. Every day. So on all the computers that we have downloaded this software have the ledger. They are part of the ledger. And as the ledger updates, all the computers update simultaneously. So there's no way to go back or 
undermine the blockchain right. because everything is secured by the number of nodes, which is the the computers running the software, right. and it's in the millions now. So the so longer the blockchain, the better and more secure it gets. It gets. Every single second, it gets more and more secure. So here's the upside is it's obviously very secure. It is a much more, um, what's the right way of saying this, if we could have less federal reserve and federal government involvement you actually could get less currency manipulation look at china look at the u.s look at any other country that intentionally manipulates their currency based on what's going on in the world we've all done it let's not pretend like we don't whereas with bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies it would be hard now here's the negative side to it it is subject to manipulation from the people that hold a lot of it if they decide to dump it it all crashes in value it all goes back up it is up and down and it is not for everyone at now, this point in time. It's the Wild West. It, it, that is true. It has become less and less that right. with the institutional adoption of Bitcoin. Yes. So, you know, there's a futures market. So you can mm-hmm. check a futures price on Bitcoin right now if you wanted to go look it up. There's a, you know, the CME has futures and you can trade against that number. Um, so it has become harder for the people with the massive amounts of Bitcoin to you know, purposely, if you will, pump and dump the, the market. I mean, it still can happen because it's still a, a, a very young raw sure. market. And But it's becoming less and less volatile in that way because of the more institutional monies have, have come in and kind of created a, a stable base, I think. Makes sense. And now there's a lot of other cryptocurrencies that are coming out daily, it seems, or at least... But they've been out for a while, yeah. yeah. I mean, years. Yes, and a lot um, of them are there. And I Yeah, right now, all, you know... Bitcoin is kind of like the spine of all cryptos. As it goes up, everything else can go up with it, but none of them really usually go up without Bitcoin going up. Every once in a while, you'll see a a rare, uh, an anomaly of one of these cryptos going up, but almost they always ride Bitcoin's coattails on the way up. Um, Some of them move move up at a higher percentage. Um, You can check that in relation to Bitcoin. There's definitely charts out there. You can kind of compare cryptos as they move in relation to Bitcoin. Um, But Bitcoin going up allows all the other cryptos to again kind of have a base to move from and then they become in that they carry the bull market with them yeah listen i i do think that i don't want to say it's bitcoin ethereum or whatever else uh, i don't know which one but i do think that it is a inevitability that we're going to get to a point where cryptocurrency becomes mainstream because the technology is so efficient and so effective that i think we get there and I think the only point of disagreement between you and I on this is, as much as I would love to be the idealist that thinks it ends up as a decentralized, completely spread out, I think the odds of this happening without getting some level of government involvement are very low. It's going to be some government-approved cryptocurrency. Well, I mean, right now, the government is involved only if you want to convert it to fiat, right? So if you, right. if you have to take it from Bitcoin and you want to, take, you want to get U.S. dollars or whatever, mm-hmm. any other government currency, you know, you're on the government aware you know you're on the watch there so um now there are ways you don't have to do that and you can just make bitcoin payments back and forth and that's where um you know some of the reputation of being able to uh facilitate you know the black market uh comes into play but it it does do that but it also allows you know the poorest people in africa to transfer money instantaneously back and forth who don't have banks so listen cash lets you do it too but i'm absolutely absolutely so um but it, it's exciting when Bitcoin is going up for me just because I've kind of been paying attention to this since almost its inception. Um, it's kind of been in libertarian circles for a long time. Um, and, you know, it's been uh, had its ups and downs for sure. And uh, the, the downs get a lot of attention, but the ups can be pretty exciting. And I 
seems as though we're heading on a little bit of an up here. So those libertarian circles, those parties got to be insane. Uh, you don't want to be there. That's fair. Um, it <laughs> turns into a big debate. Um, well, slow yeah. down, guys. It's not live so, so fast. Well, let's 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 do some. Let's touch on some of the sports here. So, like, yeah. you know, I know baseball's back up, and we we only have what eight, nine, ten eight, games, nine games, games. And the yeah. biggest story so far of baseball has been the Marlins, I think. And obviously, that was because I think a dozen or so, maybe more, of their players tested positive, so they shut down their season for a few weeks or a week at least, I guess. Sure. Um, it seems as though they're going to start to pick back up their play, and the teams that were playing with them or against them didn't have any transmission to their team so they've gone on and started to continue to play so i think that's actually good news for baseball that they had a little early break and they were able to to handle it and everybody else continued to play right um that being said as long as the marlins are able to make up those games without kind of messing up the rest of the schedule which which obviously they're going to have complete flexibility here i think because there's not much else going on so um but you know the yankees are seven and one so they look good. 59 and 1, I guess, is still a possibility. I mean, I would say it's likely, if anything. <laughs> um, but it's still Josh. early. Like you said, there's a handful of teams who've kind of got out in front them, the Twins, the Dodgers. I think um, that you're looking at a Braves Yankees World Series. Yeah, the Dodgers year. fans would probably have something to say about that. I, but I think I, the Yankees listen, are probably the odds aren't favored in the, in the AL for sure. So. I don't mean to take anything away from the Dodgers. They have a fantastic team. And it's, it's, it's going to come down to the wire. Uh, I do think, though, that the Braves are going, eh, they're both going to benefit both from really the DH in the NL. It they're could go good. either way. They're both really good. I think it's coin toss. I'm going to go with Braves over Dodgers. Uh, my apologies to, you know, the few friends I have out there that are Dodgers fans. And we got and we got the NBA back. So the NBA started last Thursday um, with a two-game slate. Got a little Lakers-Clippers uh, buzzer beater action. Yeah. Um, that was a good game. And then we uh, kind of, it's kind of odd to have, staggered NBA games throughout the afternoon. Like I think today they start at one o'clock or one thirty or something. And yesterday they started at two, which was a weekend, but like even during the week now you're having all these, because there's limited stadium space or playing in the wild world, uh, sports complex in Orlando. I'm not sure exactly how many arenas they have, but they can't, ha- they got to have more than one, but not too many. And they're rotating basically these games in between this arena. So you're getting, uh, uh, a one thirty, a three thirty, a four, a five—you know—getting staggered NBA games throughout the whole day. So it's kind of like uh, March Madness, maybe for NBA a little bit, sure. but like every day, it's like that Thursday, Friday for March Madness. You get those afternoon games, but you just get them all day. I mean, honestly, I'm an NBA guy, so I get it. But like some people aren't. But right. to me, I get basketball all day, so it's kind of a unique thing. Uh, listen, I I am not a big NBA guy. It's not my go-to. It's nothing against the sport. I love basketball. I just. Any season, it's the same reason I don't watch a ton of baseball. It's just too many games. I can't get in. Well, you have no reason this year, right? I'll go in at the end. Like that's, I'll I'll hit highlights. I'll catch the occasional game. But and obviously, the, the NBA is a, a little different than the Major League Baseball. So Major League Baseball is just starting their season. You know, with game, first games, the NBA is restarting their season um, after playing. You know, two thirds of their season. So this right. is kind of like a a cleanup of their season at the at the back end here, and then they're going to have a uh, a large playoff field tournament after that. So. And that'll be interesting. I um I here's what I'm really curious about with the NBA especially is what is the viewership going to look like? Uh, everything that came out now with uh, different or, different organizations, the national anthem, the kneeling, the standing, and all that. I think there's going to be an impact, but I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah, and you know, how, how are you ever going to measure it too with a season being so? Different. You know, different than every right. other season. So you might not actually see that until next year in a full yeah. season, um, if it continues like that. But 
I didn't think I anything think it's, of it. I think it's there. Um, I just don't know how you're going to measure it or how you're going to pull it out of the measuring of all the other craziness that's going on with the, the league as well. So I anticipate the NFL will actually have a drop in viewership because of their response. Yeah, that'll be a good measure. I do think that's the case. Now, I didn't expect that for the NBA. I was talking to a friend of mine over the weekend who's a big NBA guy, not a big political activist or politically aware or anything else, just sort of aloof, and he's like, I don't want to know, I don't care, whatever sure. else. I like the NBA, let's go. And even like the, the story about the kneeling and then the treatment of some of the Chinese nationals at some of these camps over there had reached him. And he actively avoids learning anything about this. And he was saying, he was, listen, I, I want to say I'm not, but I'll probably watch. At the very least, I'll do the playoffs, I'm sure. He goes, but I'll be honest, it's the first time I've ever not wanted to watch basketball because of it. And so I sat there, and it just completely took me off guard. I had no idea what to make of it because I assumed he didn't even know about it, number one. And number two, he wouldn't care. And it would have been like, hey, it is what it is. Let's go. But when he came in and he brought it up in conversation, I kind of shook my head like, maybe this will be more impactful than I anticipate. Maybe I'm incorrect in this assumption. Maybe not. I, I don't know. I guess we'll we'll have to t- wait and see. Yeah, but. and like I said, you know, there's so much other craziness going on with this season that who, who really knows but i mean just add it add it to the list i guess um but anyway we that sports we got baseball we got basketball we got golf and uh, i think nfl is going to come um college sports is kind of iffy um like i think these are what are they going to do basically just individual conference seasons it seems like you know like, like. kind of like the big east the acc the whatever yeah. they're all the, all those conferences and i'm guessing they may do this similar in basketball where these conferences are just you know Paring down their schedule because some of these small schools are aren't, aren't even they're not even trying they're not even going to open some of these small these fall sports so well what um, are we ever going to do without Ivy League football well I mean I don't know what's his name uh, Ryan, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick I mean I love Ryan Fitzpatrick and uh, who's the tight end there uh, Cameron Brait wouldn't he go to Harvard as well I don't know yeah, well he did oh okay see there um, they were in Tampa together so it's very intellectual uh, huddles back in the day. It's a really smart team. Yeah, yeah. Um, they didn't win much, but they uh, were really good at team trivia after the games. Ryan Fitzpatrick was the most fun person I ever watched play football because he had about forty percent of the talent that you would want of an NBA quarterback. He thought he has eighty percent. I mean, he oh. he played way. I mean, he tried to play above his head. The confidence this guy played with was unreal. I swear to God, every like I think at least twice a game he got in the huddle and just was like, "All right, everybody, go deep, <laughs> break." Um, and just slung the ball all over the field, making throws he had no business making. Yeah. It was so it was, fun to watch. That was fun to watch. And, oh he, you know, listen, he had some uh, stellar fantasy games because of that because he would uh, put up some big games somewhere once in a while. Sometimes it's not so much. He put up 450 with four touchdowns, come out the next he, week, throw for a buck 30 and three picks. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, unless you owned him. Then it wasn't as fun. So so sports is back. Um, we got a little bit of uh, shifting gears a little bit to the uh, never-ending saga of Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, and all the other gross people that are uh, involved with that, that crew. Um, they unsealed some documents from us, or for us, or for everybody, I guess. Um, not really, in my world anyway, or my view, bringing us any new names, but giving us confirmation on those names. Um, you know... I'm not going to go into a list of names because it's too long, and I'll forget somebody that whatever should be on the list. Uh, should be on the list, but it's it's very long. Um, it's getting longer by the day. Uh, one bit of delay on that news. So, Ghislaine, part of that, this whole thing came from a Ghislaine Maxwell deposition um, from a defamation case from one of the victims, 
and that her actual deposition has yet to be released and has been delayed again until September 22nd. So I don't know that that could be the, and should be the biggest piece of news coming out of all this. Um, we'll see. Um, we'll see if September 22nd, it happens. Uh, that is the plan though, is for that to be, or at least was delayed at least for Glenn Maxwell's lawyers until September 22nd. So we got to wait a little bit on that. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Obviously maybe it's a coincidence, but the big news over the week last week, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson have, uh, decided they will now be citizens of Greece, which the big fans of Giannis Antetokounmpo. Antetokounmpo, obviously, the the alpha. Yeah, that's why. Please don't ask me to say his no, last name. By I the way, I just butchered it. So, but for the those that don't know, Greece has no extradition treaty with the United States. Therefore, if you were to be wanted in the United States but living as a Greek citizen, you would not be sent from Greece to America. So, here's my question for you: Is this coincidence, or would you say that it is? probable that we may see Mr. Hanks's name coming up in some unflattering light. Um, well, do you well, just want to go with possible? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Um, okay. But his name has been linked to this or linked to, um, you know, Flight unsavory things uh, with kids before this. So, um, you know, if you've... Remember the, uh, I don't know if you remember the actor Isaac Cappy? I do not. So he killed himself, um, jumped off a bridge and hit by a truck uh, shortly after making a video outing Tom Hanks as a pedophile and Steven Spielberg as a pedophile and Seth Green as a pedophile. Um, You know, he's an actor. Seth Green was apparently his best friend. And during these series of videos, he basically said, Tom Hanks is a pedophile. Steven Spielberg is a pedophile. Seth Green is a pedophile, um, and then was pushed, put, or ended up off a bridge, uh, hit by a truck uh, shortly after one of those videos. So that has been out there for a, a year. I think this happened ago, maybe a year ago. Oh boy! So who knows? There's a bunch of stuff. If you 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 can find all the stuff you want to find out on Tom Hanks, it's out there. Um, See, I didn't do, know do any I, that. I don't know he was. On, I didn't know about yeah. those videos. I don't know about yeah. this. Like well, I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable right now. Don't, <laughs> deeply. Don't. don't I mean, listen, if you want to go down there, there's stuff to go down, and it's uh, it doesn't end. I can't so. imagine the FBI watch list. I'll end up, and if I go Google celebrity pedophile Tom Hanks, like I don't want to get, I don't want to get any more lists. No, you better find a different search engine than Google. <laughs> I'll go to Lycos again. So, but who knows? If the, I mean, this is a crazy, crazy story. Remember, I you know I, I I'm not going to go into this dude because I don't have any anything that's brought up, but I you know I quick Google search of Dershowitz's lawyers, right? So I'm, I'm just oh, Googling God. these lawyer guys and I see Louis Free. I'm there. I'm like, Louis Free, why don't I know that name? I'm like, oh yeah, former FBI director. Okay, I, I remember him. And then I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page and I'm scrolling down and I see a sub, a, a, a bold like subtitle of his, of a Wikipedia says Penn State and I'm like, no way. I'm like, this can't be, <laughs> he can't be part of this too, right? So I scroll in, I'm like, wasn't he the guy that's picked by Penn State to investigate Sandusky? Oh boy. This guy, Louis Free. Dershowitz and Epstein's lawyer, the former FDI director, appointed by Bill Clinton in the 90s. That guy. That effing guy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Where does this end? Yeah, he's, uh, he's come under some fire of recent, too, Mr. I mean, he doesn't seem like a good guy. I'm just saying that his name shows up in some places that it probably shouldn't, and I don't believe in coincidences. So I guess maybe to your Tom Hanks question, I don't believe in coincidences, 
But I don't know about that whole thing yet. So With Tom Hanks, I think the answer is, at least on my end of it, boy, it's one hell of a timing. It's, it's just, okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but man, that is... Uh, that is interesting timing. Well, like I said, we you know we'll see if his name emerges in some kind of a confirmation of some kind of a document or a log or something, and yeah. then we'll kind of cross that bridge when we get to it. Well, not only that, with with free for everybody that doesn't know, this Alan Dershowitz was the attorney to Jeffrey Epstein, who basically went out and dragged all of his accusers through the mud. Uh, was then accused himself of engaging in uh, carnal knowledge of Virginia Gouffre. Am I saying Gouffre? 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 Yeah. Gouffre, sorry. Yeah, but. But Louis Free was actually hired by Dershowitz. That's what I was going to say. Oh, okay, go ahead. Now that Dershowitz is in the middle of his own lawsuit with the uh, alleged, I don't know what the right word is here, accuser? Victims. Victim. Pick your word. Um, he's retained Louis Free as counsel, uh, which, okay. But Free, basically, when he was the head of the FBI, there were charges that they were misusing forensic evidence and misinterpreting it intentionally. Uh, and some other shady dealings, and so now, so it's just coincidental that the guy they picked to investigate the pedophilia around Penn State and Jerry Sandusky also has some shady so track record. It'd be a nice way to insulate some uh, other people if they wanted to kind of, you know, let's use a bad word, quarantine the Penn State uh, incident to just a Penn State thing. They could have an investigator, lead investigator, who would not look outside of the campus. Is really my where my brain went immediately. Or like, just not look outside Jerry Sandusky. That's theory. what I'm saying. Just hey, we'll just make sure that we get our scapegoat and we're on to we're on to the next thing. So yeah, it's crazy. And then you know, I I didn't I didn't want to I I didn't have time. I I could have Ken Starr right. He's the other one who's on the on the team, and we already know about him and the you know the the Clinton investigation too. So. Um, it, there is a lot of sorted pieces. Wait, what was the Ken Starr thing again? Ken Starr, he was part that. of the, uh, um, wasn't he part of the Lewinsky? Uh, yeah, he was the lead investigator. In yeah, the but he's Bill part Clinton. of Dershowitz's team he now as well. Well, maybe he was part of the. It was back then. The 2015 Epstein. He was part of Epstein's legal counsel yep. during the plea deal in Florida. Yep. There, there's just too many pieces. Yeah, it's all so bad. And they're all playing different roles and different parts and different parts of history here. Like as they need them, they just emerge where they need him to be and make the decision that needs to be made at that time to move the ball forward again. And I don't know, I don't know how it ends. Um, like None there needs do. to be, there, there needs to be just a persistent, endless drip and drip of information and it never needs to stop and people need to talk about it and people need to, to, to let other people know about it and it just never needs to go away because some of these people are going to die off and that's a convenient way to end the story. But right now there's a bunch of these people who are alive and kicking and they can be held account and they should be. And right now this story doesn't get any traction because there's too many other things going on, but this is the biggest story of all time. It's bigger than any story that could possibly imagine. And it's just starting to break open. Um, so hopefully we'll get more information. Hopefully the right people can find their way into positions that can uh, thwart some of these evil doers who are already in position of power. Um, we'll see. I, you know, we'll see who who wins out. I don't. I don't know how it ends. I, I, there's new information every single freaking day that makes you want to go another way and that and that you know look up something else or, or 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 look down this path. I mean, there's just endless. You just fall down the rabbit hole. It's just endless. There's it's it's a cavernous cavernous 
rabbit hole. So I've gone down some of these rabbit holes, and here's what I can tell anybody if you're going to do it. Number one, it's fascinatingly interesting. It's unbelievable the amount of coincidences and, and low percentage things that seem to keep happening. It is also utterly terrifying because the idea that any of this is, and I would say at this point it's more likely true than not. There's more truth to this idea that this is widespread. There's more likely than not. I'm not saying it's it, definitive, but it's far more likely than unlikely. And it's so depressing to yeah. realize that this probably has been happening. And if it has, in fact, have, if it, if it has been happening, oh, my God. That right. It's awful. And so, you know, I'm not one who is not lost on the idea that the CIA and the intelligence agencies across, around the world do shady stuff on the, you know, that they probably shouldn't be doing. It's almost like it's part of their regular business. And yeah. if they're willing to do this, which is legitimately the worst thing I could possibly imagine them doing for the benefit of the country, right? If that's what they're trying to sell it as, right? If these intelligence agencies are saying, okay, well, we're doing this to maintain leverage over our, for, over our, our, you know, our opponents globally trying to, you know, maintain relationships with our allies globally. This is a terrible way to do it. And if they're willing to do this, the idea of running drugs is nothing. The idea of doing other illegal for every day, you know, me and you to do things sure. is being done rampant by our governments at the very top of, of, of these governments by these intelligence agencies and they're making money. It's endless. Like, I don't know that if, if they broke, if this whole thing, this Epstein thing breaks free and these powerful people go down, there's going to be more than just pedophilia rings going down with them. It's a global, like there are, you know, military arms deals. There's again, drugs. There is major, major things going down and Epstein's name and Epstein's, uh, people in his book and his circle seem to find their way into all of these other circles. So, um, I think that they were running a lot of this world and doing so to, to, to what end, you know, for what end, I don't know, but they had immeasurable leverage on some of the most powerful people in the world. Right. They had endless resources. They could do anything they wanted. Yep. Which Absolutely. is crazy. It's a concern. Um, let's talk about New York a little bit. I mean, I was since... already so uplifted. Let's talk about more good yeah. things. I mean, so last week you weren't here, but I brought up, Governor Cuomo's uh, defense of himself and his handling of nursing home deaths by him citing that we were New York State was the 35th ranked nursing home, you know, 35th out of 50 states. Uh, so he basically insinuated or told the reporter to talk to the other 34 states ahead above them um, before they start talking to him about nursing home deaths. I, I didn't really get your take on that. Other than I'm sure you're happy about it. I mean, what, what do you have any uh, initial feedback on your governor's comments there about his stellar handling of nursing homes? I mean, obviously, what, what a genius this gentleman is. All right, look, I, I, I've said this before. If you've ever watched this program before, you know my feelings on this. The idea that anybody would give this man the benefit of the doubt is insanity. All right, so we count nursing home deaths pretty self-explanatory everywhere across the country. If you contract SARS-CoV-2 while you are in a nursing home and then you proceed to pass away, you would count as a nursing home death because you got it in the nursing home. You got sick in the nursing home. We know that's where you got it. And then when you die, that is a nursing home resident who passed away everywhere in the country. And to the best of my knowledge, everywhere in the world does it this way, except us. 
For some reason, New York State gets to say, well, if you get it in the nursing home and then you go to a hospital and die, that is a hospital death, not a nursing home death. This is insanity. This is uh, unbelievable. Like, it's the equivalent of saying like you're trying to see who's killed the most people and you say, well, if I shot him in the street but they made it to the hospital to die – then it's not really the same thing. No, it is. It's where you, it was the cause of death, where it came from. Yeah. So the fact that you still have people listening to this and believing this and not pushing back on this at all is insane. I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like I genuinely feel like maybe I am going crazy. I, I continue to hear people talk about, well, at least we're not Florida, Texas, and Arizona. I would and I'm like, to be Florida. What? What? Like, what are we talking about? Right. I know we're not, we're not them in what way. Like, what are you using to measure? How are you determining that New York is better than them? There, there's no measurable statistic other than new cases at present. Exactly right. That's the only measure. It's the only metric by which and New so, York is winning. And so we're, we're just, we got it first. So that's, that's legitimately the only first. difference. We didn't get it first. Washington got it sure. first. Okay? We got to stop pretending like New York State was so far ahead of everybody else with their first case. We weren't. Washington had it. It was on the West Coast to begin with. And then we got a case in New York. You know what's funny? Not one state came close to as bad as we did in this state. Now, look, some of and, that is not on the governor. And, and just a quick line, unless you finish. Yeah. So second on that list is New Jersey, who basically mirrored all of the, the, the protocols that our governor did. They basically did them in unison between the two states. They're by far the two worst. So Absolutely. Con continue to go ahead. All I'm right. sorry. So not only that, if you look at New Jersey's statistics of on a map of where all the cases are, I'll give you one guess if it's in northern, middle, or southern New Jersey where over 85% of their cases are. You're not going to need to think too hard. It's near New York City. The closer you get to the city, the more cases you get. So look, the idea of, well, they had it first. No, that's I'm sorry, but we didn't. That's not true. Well, New York City is just so densely populated. Okay, fine, but it's not in the 50 most populate, densely populated cities worldwide. It doesn't make the top 50. In America, it's a high population density, but not worldwide. It's, it's not, well, it's got a ton of international travel. You're right. In the entire world, it is the eighth most, which means, or ninth most. There's eight cities that get more international travel. None of these cities have done worse than New York City did. Not one. Yeah. So at some point, I'm begging people, look, stop assuming that we did something right and look at this as objectively as you can. It's not even feasible. I mean, New York State has something to the effect of 1,300 people dead per million of population. 1,300 deaths per million of population from SARS-CoV-2. This is nuts. Like, we are a first world country and New York is one of the premier drivers of that. Uh, the entire country of India, which by all accounts is a third world country, has six of the top 25 most, most densely populated cities in the entire world and has, I think, two in the top 10 for the most international travel. The entire country of India has 28 deaths per million of population. New York State has 1,300. The, the idea, and first case, around the same time. The idea that New York deserves credit for any of this is asinine. If you are bending the mental gymnastics, you have to do the data, you have to ignore, and the absolute cognitive dissonance it requires to give Andrew Cuomo any benefit of any doubt and any credit whatsoever for the handling of the SARS-CoV-2 problem pandemic is insanity. Please stop. I'm begging you. I'm begging you to look at this as objectively as you can and stop it. Just here's the game. 
Imagine Donald Trump was in charge of the state instead of Andrew Cuomo and the exact same thing happened. What would you do? Yeah, he'd be tarred and feathered. As he should be. Like, the, I, listen, the guy shouldn't be tarred and feathered, obviously. The, the nursing home call was horrifically wrong. The cover-up was horrifically wrong. Manipulating the data to cover up the deaths even longer and then having a sham investigation into himself that concluded he did nothing wrong is all nuts. Like, he deserves to be called out for that, and we deserve to have the truth about it. The reality is we have no idea how many nursing home deaths we have in the state. In what world is that okay? Why do we just go, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Andrew Cuomo's good. Like, this is, uh, don't get me wrong, New York did have specific problems, and not all of it was on the governor. It was earlier than most other states. We didn't have good treatment. We were putting too many people on ventilators that we later learned was not the ideal treatment if it could be avoided. So, yes, some of it is not, it was going to be worse in New York. I agree with that than almost anywhere else in the country. It shouldn't be to the point where New York has 33,000 deaths, New Jersey has 17,000 deaths, and the next closest state has like 6,000. It shouldn't be that big of a disparity. There's not that many factors that make New York different. No, and then you take those numbers and and you try to parse out those nursing home deaths. It's such a large number of those that if you removed that portion of the death count, there's not a pandemic. It's right. it's it's as if <laughs> it's as if Cuomo lit the brush fire for the whole thing. So it's not just Cuomo. In unison w- w- with everybody who orchestrated the nursing home. I mean, listen. So there was. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that they were. Fearful of hospital beds being overrun by non-elderly people if the elderly people overran their beds. I'm giving that benefit of the doubt. As you should. It was a fear. Everybody else saw quickly, or at least more quickly than our governor did, and changed that order. Everybody kind of knew that the elderly were the most vulnerable, and yet that was where we didn't give the most attention. Um... Other states did, we didn't, and I think we suffered the consequences from it. I don't think, like I said, I don't think we're breaking news here. I just don't understand why more people aren't aware that this is actually happening and are still trying to somehow pat Governor Cuomo on the back and praise his handling of this when it was probably the worst. I mean, statistically, it is the worst. Absolutely. Look. There's six states. I had to look it up. I had to remind myself of what they were. It was New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. These states account for about 30% of the U.S. population. Uh, As of a few weeks ago, and I don't have updated numbers, but I'll get them, it was over 60% of the deaths could be attributed to these six states. And the six states had in common, every one of them had an order in place that nursing homes had to accept and couldn't test for COVID-19. So the reality is if you start looking at the numbers and breaking it down, the mortality rate on this virus is probably going to end up being somewhere between 0.25 and 0.5, which is serious. It's a bad, bad illness. If you break the numbers down further, the mortality rate for people with underlying health conditions is substantially higher, and the mortality rate for people without health conditions is virtually zero. It's statistically insignificant. So when you send these people into a vulnerable population that live on top of each other and none of them had the proper protective equipment to actually stem the disease, to stem the spread of this disease, what did you think was going to happen? This is exactly the result. It is logical that that would be the next step. 
But we want to deny that for some reason. We want to deny the reality that, of course, if we put people into nursing homes, they were going to get they were going to get it. They were going to die. It was going to cause an increased mortality rate because instead of protecting the people that have probably a five percent mortality rate, we didn't. We instead protected the people that had a let's call it one percent because I'll, there's obviously some sick people out in the general public that were at yeah, risk. We, we actually compromised that that group too. Not right. only did we not protect them, we did the exact opposite. Right. And then we covered it up and we let that order go for six weeks. That stayed in effect. Like at some point you have to own it and say, yeah. no, this and is they, wrong. And he had to know it because you remember he altered the, the order midway through saying mid April, mid April saying, okay, you guys have to take him unless you're un, unequipped to do so. Right. So it gave them an out. Oh no, that didn't hum, come until May when he said that. Okay, so I thought... Mid-April is when they started counting the deaths this way. Here's the sad reality. It's not even that they changed it. It's that they weren't counting nursing home deaths from March 25th when he signed the order until mid-April. They weren't even tracking it. It wasn't even on their radar. So as much as I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that you had to make a calculated decision about do you risk overrunning the hospitals or do you expose the nursing homes, they didn't even think about it. There was no thought given to, or no tracking at least, to say... Hey, we got to figure yeah, out. There might not happening. have been any tracking, but there had to be an anecdotal knowledge because I know there was knowledge here locally that our nursing homes were being hit disproportionately to everybody else. And it's my understanding that we or our county executive tried to get testing at some of our facilities and was turned away by the state and said, no, we're not doing that. Um, that if that's true, happen. then, you know, it makes zero sense. Like it, there's, there's only one reason to do that. You know, there's going to be positives. You're taking it back anyway, because if you test and you get negatives and you send it back anyway, now you're culpable. So the reason to squash the tests is to just remove plausibility, basically, right? You're just basically trying to make it not my problem. We didn't know. So here's the other half of it for if you're going to I've gotten into this debate and I've had this discussion several times. And the other one is, well, it, there was no way for them to know it that early on. All right, fine. You, that that might be the case. Well, there's only two options here because Florida actually did a tremendous job of protecting the nursing homes. Now, I'm not a big Ron DeSantis cheerleader any more than I am for any other politician. I think they all suck. That's my personal opinion, but fine. But they protected the nursing homes. Uh, California instituted the rule and then two days later or, or like four days later changed it and said, no, we can't send these people into nursing homes. We have to protect them. A lot of other states prioritized getting PPP, excuse me, PPE to the nursing homes right away. That was priority number one. Right. So here's your options if you're in the camp. Either Andrew Cuomo got it right or Ron DeSantis is an absolute genius with the foresight to get all out ahead of this problem and nailed it correctly. I don't care which one you want to go with. Pick one. Did Andrew Cuomo get it wrong, or is Ron DeSantis a genius? Whatever your option is, great. Let's live with it. The idea that we didn't know for until this order got changed in May, May 10th, is absolute revisionist history. Do not let people get away with this because it's wrong. And at no time did Andrew Cuomo just come out and say, hey, we were trying to do this. We were wrong. We changed it as soon as we could. At some point, the cover-up is worse than the crime. Right. You could have been forgiven if you had done it for two Absolutely. or three weeks and then said, oh, shoot, we need to change. Right. You didn't. You kept this going for six, uh, for, geez, yeah, six weeks. Yeah, 
to six weeks. Like at some point you had to step up and then you came out and lied and you covered up every way till Sunday. Like, well, no, still. The, the nursing homes always know that they can turn people down. They can't care for still. Oh, really? Then, then why'd you pass the executive order? Yeah, Why was that? He's he's still deflecting to this day. You know, he's trying to make it a national thing when primarily the devastation happened in New York. Right. Oh, um, by the way, as far as Dr. Fauci goes, I don't ever, like, make a personal attack on Dr. Fauci. I disagree with a lot of his mandates. I mean, he throws, like, a terrible, terrible... Oh, he's a terrible pitcher. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw That was ugly. That was um, about as good as his model. But I think Dr. Fauci, I don't... I don't ever try to get it in on the intent or the motives of a human being. I think it's too hard of a game to play. It's too easy to have confirmation bias come in and steer you incorrectly. I've always said Dr. Fauci seems like he is genuinely trying to do what he knows. I also think there's a reason you never let an infectious disease doctor mandate public policy because their answer to everything is shut it down and pull everything out, and there's no thought to the economic or the, the natural re- reverberations that will come from that. Right. The only time that I ever brought that into question was when he came out and said, New York is the model to follow. <laughs> that was the only time I went, I don't even know if I trust you at all anymore. Like now yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, you are a deep state plant. That's just so, out to undermine. <laughs> like all of a sudden, all of it came crashing in. And so it's, I saw that and like, where's the disconnect? Like, you know, I, I keep hearing, you know, our governor saying like, you know, this is not politics, but like, it's freaking politics on their part. Like they're, they're, they're clearly playing politics. Um, it's, it's not like, again, I was, I, I read that article a couple of times to make sure that I wasn't, you know, it wasn't the onion or the one of those crazy things. I was like, wait a minute, we're actually picking. And then the onion or maybe the Babylon B actually just almost verbatim copied the headline and just wrote it and just wrote another like story with it because it's so absurd. Right. It's so absurd. You're relying on people having the confirmation like, bias. Of of all the states, New York should have been not picked. Like they okay, let's just take New York off the list for the best. Like if if I'm if I'm in that brainstorming session with Fauci, like, hey, who's gonna who are we gonna talk to as who are we gonna tout as our role model? It's not going to be the state with the most deaths. It's not gonna be this state with this unknown you know, question of nursing home deaths and how they were handled in this crazy executive order. It's not going to be that state. Let them pick some other state, but it has to pick the one legitimately the worst on the list. And the worst by double. That's the, the, the again. It, and again, s- if you remove New Jersey from that list, which is basically just, you know, an extension Robin to York. Batman, it's right. just that you could combine those two and it is stark to see if you could re- isolate those two death counts from the rest of this. It is nothing. It's, I mean, it's not nothing. It's right. it's not what we're at now. There's no lockdowns. There's no facial covering mandates. There's no social distancing mandate. There is nothing. There's awareness that hey, this thing is out here and people should be protected. But there is not all this economic devastation going on without these. If you took this piles of deaths out of New York and New Jersey, if you took away the six states that did this order that have this type of a policy of sending the the COVID patients into the nursing home. If you did away with those averaged out the other 44 states, as far as mortality rates per million and everything else, and then just assumed that those six states would have been around there plus 10%, give or take, because obviously New York city is, it is highly population, high population density for this country. It's very high population density. It's just internationally. It's not. So let's assume it would have been a little worse either way. You're not even talking about, a pandemic you're talking about a really bad flu season yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's what you were well, looking at. I mean, I think I saw a chart where, like, the grade two flu season, which there is no recommendation from the CDC on any social distancing, any face coverings, any of this, is up to 450,000 deaths. So, like, we're not even, that's that's the, that's the you know, phase, or the, the second value of the flus. I mean, there's, it, it didn't, if those deaths, the, the New York and New Jersey, and I, I, you don't have to read the other, five, the other four states on that list, because there's such a drop off after, after the first New York two, and New Jersey, yes, just showing that this, these two people, these two states, use this order, use this protocol to basically light a brush fire of deaths amongst our nursing home residents in this state and New Jersey, should be the lead story of every paper in this state and in New Jersey and nationally. I mean. Right. We say hindsight is twenty twenty. I know twenty twenty is a naughty word these days, but hindsight is twenty twenty. I mean, we, we can look back and see the stuff now. I don't understand why people are just blind to the facts. I I'm 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 a little bit lost on it. I am at a point of utter confusion, and this is I keep reverting back to it of if it's unjustifiable. Never mind the fact that we also gave nursing homeowners and executives complete immunity from being sued for anything related to a COVID death. That's not insane, and I'm sure it was just a coincidence, coincidence. that they donated a million dollars to Andrew Cuomo's oh, yeah. campaign like three weeks beforehand. I'm sure, again, coincidence, nothing to look at. If you're not at least asking the question, and I think this is something you and I don't even talk about a lot because we've just agreed it's insanity, and I don't have a good explanation for this. Again, I am not a big conspiracy theorist guy. I don't want to have the tinfoil hat and go down these rabbit holes. I just can't help but be a little bit curious. And the entire course of our history... Anytime Spanish flu, SARS, COVID-1, H1N1, swine flu, bird flu, mad cow disease. We have never once looked at the data as death with disease. It had to be primary cause of death. This is the first time we have ever done it as death with COVID. There are cases of the guy down in Florida where the reporter asked the two 24-year-olds who died on the COVID list. Did they have pre-existing health conditions? And with a straight face, the guy responds, well, one of them didn't. He died in a motorcycle accident. Why is this guy on the list? Obviously, he did not die of COVID-19, but it doesn't matter because the way we're measuring the deaths is here. Yeah. Now, I don't know what impact that has. I don't, I, obviously, it's going to cause a higher death count. No question. Why are we doing that? I Truly, I, I don't have an answer, but I'm asking people, ask yourself that question. Why? Why would we do this? Is this accurate? Is this normal? And the answer is no, it's not normal. It's the first time we've ever done it. I don't think there's a worldwide conspiracy headed by Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and they're trying to microchip us. I really don't. I just want an answer. Why is the, the lead epidemiologist in our country looking at the state that has unquestionably horrific numbers and saying, model to follow right there? Why? Yeah. Why are these countries in the Nordic regions who have absolutely no mask mandates outside of public transportation? not having spikes. Why is India that has had a mask mandate in place since April 20th, seeing the largest increases in cases when they are not only having the mandate, they're enforcing it. They are fining people by the day for not wearing a mask. Vi virus going to virus. So this is the question. Why is it that all of these things don't add up and we just never even ask why that not, not one objective question to say, wait, 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 that doesn't sit right. That, 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 seems, that seems to not compute. And then the study comes out. Like every study has come out and said children are not spreading this disease. 
one study comes out of Chicago and says, well, they, uh, they actually, the children with mild to, or excuse me, with moderate to severe symptoms have an increased buildup of the SARS-CoV-2 in their nasal cavity. So it only makes sense that when they cough, it would spread more, similar to all the other coronaviruses that we know about and similar to these other respiratory illnesses. I read this and I just looked like that, that's not science. Number one, what is it? How many kids actually get moderate to severe symptoms from COVID-19? The answer is, 1%. So you're looking at the smallest subset of this small subset, and then you can't even draw the actual conclusion to say it spreads. You say it logically follows that they would spread because they have a buildup. Are, are you kidding? You said it fits the narrative, so you can and run with it. Nobody why? questions it because it fits the narrative. Nobody questions it. Right, but at some point, look at this. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not any of these things. I know how to read a study, and I'm pretty good at logic. So... I'm not saying the studies that say masks don't work are definitively true either. They're not. The fact that this is not still up for a debate is insane to me. The fact that anybody on either side of this debate would look around and say cloth, cloth face coverings are good or bad and that's it is madness. No, it's not settled. It's not well known. We don't know that. And if you, as soon as you say that, you've already lost because now what you think you have are answers, not conclusions. Answers are right or wrong. Conclusions are drawn on the evidence. When the evidence comes in to change it, you should change your conclusion. An answer is yes or no. Stop pretending like we have all these answers. We don't. Everything is subject to new evidence. If you're not aware of the data showing that face coverings are useless when you're walking around public places, I would encourage you to look it up. I promise you it's out there, but if you use Google, it is a little hard to find. So it's out there and it's, it's troubling to me that this is what we have right now is if you try to say anything contrarian, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're dangerous. You're dangerous. You're, you're citing all this stuff. Like, you got to be kidding me. I'm not a genius. I just want to know the truth. If you have data that contradicts something I'm saying, please send it to me and I will read it and I will change my opinions accordingly. Don't send me a, a pithy little article that some cafe owner wrote talking about how we're going to not have our employees wash hands because that's freedom. Like, look, if you're really trying to compare the effectiveness of wearing a cloth face covering to washing your hands and cooking chicken to the proper temperature, you're being disingenuous or you're dumb. It's one or the other. Like you have to know that those aren't the same thing. Dumb's the wrong word. You haven't looked at the data to support the mask wearing. It's not definitive. It yeah. is maybe. It's possible. Yeah. And and I don't think there's anything definitive in the lockdowns unless you're going to ensure that you've done it early enough to be effective. Like, and I don't know that anybody did that. So, Right. But the idea that you would say, well, you're wrong and this is how I know is, no, 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 no. We don't know. I'm not we, telling you I'm right. I'm telling you there is contradictory data and that people are way too inclined to confuse correlation and causation. The so, fact that two things happen doesn't mean one caused the other. Uh, the last couple of minutes that we have with our folks here, I don't know if we can answer this in three minutes or whatever it is, but I could do a lot of good things in three <laughs> minutes. I couldn't help myself. I'm so sorry. Where, where are we going in New York? Like, I, you know, I, I, this is phase 4.6 B to me, I guess six weeks and a bar change after phase four opened. So I don't know. I mean, is there ever a phase where the fuck open? Um, Eventually, yes, but I do think, and and what? So, I said this to somebody the other day. You know, people were like, "Oh, people are going to wait for the vaccine. People are going to wait for this." People, I said, "People are going to wait until they're comfortable doing what they want to do when they're comfortable doing it." 
I don't know when that is. I think it'll be different for every single person. And some of that is going to depend on, again, what data they're absorbing to right. make those conclusions. Um, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of people willing to do or take on more personal risk with a non-existent, you know, case or death rate in our county specifically. I mean, we're almost down to zero here. Um, zero can never be the goal. Sure. That's what, I guess that's my point. It's like, how, how, where, how close to zero do you have to get? Right. Because the reality is we have a country of 330 million people. The idea that we don't have people die every day is insanity. So if you're hoping that a virus that does exist and is a threat to people with health conditions and a very large threat to those people is never going to kill anybody ever again, I'm going to tell you you're nuts. We have a flu vaccine. Not only did the flu kill people with health conditions, it kills perfectly healthy children every single year. But we've always accepted that risk and moved on. As far as where is New York State going, I don't have a good feel for it. I, I don't know because at some point as the data continues to come in, your measures from Governor Cuomo become unjustifiable. Yeah. And the people will only take so much. And you're already seeing it, particularly upstate, where we're going, it's enough, man. Stop. Like, I, Let's go on about our lives. We'll be smart. We'll be cautious. Yeah. If, if he has genuine concerns about downstate and how they're handling things, and, and so, like, there was never, ever any kind of – you know, stress put on upstate where they could not handle what was happening ever. Not one day right. where there was out of control patience for anything. Now, Erie and yet, County here we got are. it the worst of upstate uh, near Buffalo, and they got they were stressed, but it was never close to overwhelming the system. Right. They, right. It, it was stressed. They, right. they, they had, they had bad days. It's not, again, again, this is, you know, beating my head against the wall, but it's not worth the, the cure has not been worth the virus. No, I, mean, I agree with that. I think the um, if you look at the increase in suicides, the increase in overdose, people get that have addiction problems falling back into it, child abuse, domestic violence, all of these things, not to mention there are naturally negative consequences to being poor. There are. It's well documented. Health issues, safety issues, crime issues, and everything else. You are putting people in poverty at this point, and you are sending them there quickly. The fact that we still can't open gyms in this state is insane to me. And bowling alleys. And bowling alleys. And like restaurants running at 25 to 50% capacity are going out of business. You can't make it. You can't get by. Sorry. It's, it's the way economics work. The restaurant business is a tough business. You need to have seats. You yeah. need to do this. So You, you have 100% capacities for a reason. Right. right. And you plan according to those. And you don't. Right ever account for less than that your your business model changes immediately so so where are we going i honestly don't know the state has no money we're desperate for a federal bailout and honestly i knowing the the players i don't want to say i know them well but knowing their instincts and having followed this for a few years uh, i do think at some point a federal bailout for states and municipalities will become available i would not be shocked if uh, president trump put it out there and said not for the states but we'll give directly to the local governments just because he's kind of a jerk. Um, and number two would be you can get a bailout, but the numbers are low now, especially in your state if you're below this threshold. In order to get the bailout money, in order for us to fund your misspending over the last however long, you have to lift the restrictions. The restrictions have to be brought down because we need to get people back to work. We yeah, because there are restrictions on the economy. Is that, I know they're perceived as restrictions for safety, but really all those are restricting economic flow. 
Right. And and again, for to what end? Because New York had some of the most restrictive measures of any area, and the results speak for themselves. You look at a country like Sweden, where as much as people want to dunk on them for this, that, or the other, their numbers really aren't bad. No. They did really well, and they never did any of the shutdowns. There is no, there's not even a correlation to shutdowns and success. There's not. It's, I, I get why it would work or why it should work, but at some point you have to be willing to adjust your mindset to the data and go, all right, wait a minute. This was not the least restrictive means of attaining those ends. So let's adjust. So now let's protect the people that have health issues. Let's protect the people that have all these underlying conditions and the people that don't get them out and get them to work right now so that we don't have a, a recession or a depression that comes from all of these businesses going under. Yeah, I, it, I think a recession is almost inevitable and a depression course. is very likely. Um, the longer this goes on, the more likely it gets. You can't leave so people out of work. Let's just, let's end on a depression. That'll be fun. Um, well, we're not ending. We're, we're not ending. We're going to end the live stream. I, we have an interview. We interviewed uh, Dr. Christopher Brown. He's superintendent of uh, Marcus Whitman School District um, out a little bit south of uh, Rochester, I believe, uh, like Finger, Finger Lakes area, um, about his process about reopening his school district. I'm going to attach that interview to our show today for the audio file, and I'll, I'll post Dr. Brown's interview separately within our Facebook page so everybody can kind of listen to that on a separate note here too but I will make sure I we're already at an hour here and that's about a 30 40 minute interview so I'll post that separately but I'll add it to the audio file for the podcast uh Mr. Hughesong anything else you would like to leave the audience with yeah if you have a chance check out that interview uh Dr. Brown is very knowledgeable he's been a superintendent a long time he's been very involved in the process and he'll give you a lot of insight especially if you have kids for understanding things from the school side of the board of Whatever we want to do, here's other concerns. I can want to send kids back five days a week, but I need staffing. We get guidance from the governor's office or from the Department of Education or from somebody else, and it's not always clear. The words matter. The little words matter, and he does a very good job of breaking that down and talking a little bit about the response from the families, from the teachers, from the students. Uh, it's a really good interview. We really appreciate yeah, Dr. Brown and we, coming and we, on. And we, yeah, we, and we walk it back to March, so as we, um, you know, as, the t- as this thing kind of was unfolding in school was in in session. We kind of walk them back to that day and then kind of walk them through the summer all the way through graduation and uh, up to the reopening plan here. So do check out that interview. It was uh, very good, very knowledgeable, especially for anybody who's, again, has families and trying to figure out their school situation. You can at least get a perspective from a superintendent out there. So with that, Mr. Hughesong, I want to thank uh, everybody for joining us and uh, we'll see you all again next uh, Monday. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Our guest this week is a superintendent of Marcus Whitman School District. He's been a superintendent for over 20 years, uh, award-winning schools that he has uh, led there with Federal Blue Ribbon Schools of Excellence, reward schools, and top schools in the United States by U.S. News & World Report. He's worked with city schools, private schools, alternative education programs. I'd like to welcome Dr. Chris Brown to the program. Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Good morning, guys. How's it going today? Very good. Yourself? Good. Good. Uh, Uncertain times here. Um, We're trying to kind of get our handle on New York State schools and how they're reopening in the fall here. But I'd first like to go back to March as they were closing down and kind of walk through what you were thinking, 
um, you know, what was happening in, in your district and, you know, what you saw in other districts and kind of take us a, a flashback to where we were in mid-March. Uh, can you do that for us, Mr. Dr. Brown? Yeah. So, you know, it was pretty confusing, you know, after being a superintendent for so long, my, the first crisis I, I kind of led through was 9-11. And that was, 9-11 was very confusing as a superintendent because you, you didn't know what was coming next. And there were, you know, question marks and, and there really was no guidance about about what to do. And uh, when COVID started to, to kind of become more prevalent, um, we I had a similar feeling to that because there was no plan book really for it. And it's interesting we were having our uh, winter drama club performance um, over, over the course of a weekend. And the first night we were able to have a, uh, you know, full house and did the whole thing. Well, in the process between a Friday and Saturday night, we got the guidance that we could keep schools open, but that we had to uh, space, space the students out and space and space um, our audience out and that kind of thing. So, Overnight, we had to kind of think on the fly, do we still continue to run this musical because people were starting to get nervous and, and all of that. And so the next day at the, the matinee performance, I showed up and um, at that point, we, I, had, I had also learned at that point that they were going to be closing schools. And so they weren't going to get a Sunday performance. So it was kind of like an on the fly thing. I, I pulled, the, uh, pulled the students together who were, who were involved in the performance before the performance. And I said, hey, look, if you've got a, uh, a grandparent, a family member who it was going to come tomorrow, I said, why don't you give them a call now and see if they can come tonight I, or t- today and tonight? I said, because we're not going to have a Sunday performance. We're going to have to shut this down after this. And that's when I think the gravity of the whole thing kind of, uh, you know, kind of settled in. And then the next week when we learned that we, you know, we definitely had to close, um, you know, we had all the parents come in, we had the students come in, clean out lockers, get computers to bring home. And it was kind of surreal. It was kind of like an end of the school year piece. But what I felt was interesting about that was the the students and community were great about it. But even then, we're, we're talking like March, I don't know, 12th, 13th, 14th, I was already talking to parents who were walking in to get things that said they, they were already getting laid off from their jobs that early in March. And, uh, you know, once we got closed, it, it took it took us and other schools probably a good, I'm going to say, better part of three weeks to figure out, you know, how are students going to learn remotely? How are teachers going to teach remotely? I'm, the, the current district that I'm in is in a very rural area, so I've got pockets with no internet. So how do you handle that? And we had, to, we had to try to get guidance from the Department of Health. You know, can I get teachers into the buildings, please, so that we can have, we can make paper copies of things. And then I had to get bus drivers going to make deliveries. Um, the food service piece, I think, was probably the most telling if you talk about the impact, <clears throat> excuse me, of the, of the pandemic on the economy because uh, we were required to do uh, food, food, not do food, we were, we were required to have food available for our students um, right from the jump. And the first few weeks, we had very few takers. And by the first month, um, you know, we were serving in a week, we were serving over 2000 dinners in a week uh, to families and uh, about 3000 breakfast lunches in the course of a week to families. So we learned, <clears throat> you look at that curve and you say to yourself, okay, this, this pandemic is, is, is obviously having an impact, you know, on the economy. And, and then as we got to April, May, 
people started to, to talk about, well, how are you going to assess these kids and their learning? And it was really, a, uh, it really drew two groups of people, people that said, um, you know, get over it. Let's get these kids through this very unusual time in history, get to the summer and see what happens to the other people who were saying, you know, if these kids weren't doing all the things that they were supposed to do in their online classes, they should fail and they should be held back. And I think as a superintendent, that was a tough thing to manage because, um, I, you know, I look at it as we have, I believe we have school buildings and districts for a reason. I, I think we've got them um, because we're the center of, of the community. We, we provide a consistent environment for all kids and, and all learners. And when a child is at home, you have no idea what's happening at their house, apartment, and at their kitchen table or whatever. And, you know, what, what we found is that a lot of our students are farmers or their families are farmers. They, they had to help out on the farm because they were trying to make money and keep their houses afloat and schoolwork kind of came second, you know? And um, so we, we got through that and we ended up using, most schools use kind of a, a rubric to score uh, engagement levels and that kind of thing and, and get through. And graduation was, uh, was interesting, you know, socially distanced and uh, um, trying to make it as special as possible. I was fortunate to be able to do a, an outdoor graduation, have all of our graduates together, which I know a lot of schools were not able to do. Um, I'm the kind of person, I'm, I'm a child-centered superintendent, so if, if I had to do 12 in-person graduations so that everybody could see their kids graduate, I would have done it. I, I was just fortunate. I was able to get them all together, and we had uh, people, uh, graduates could bring two people to come and, and watch their watch their kid cross the stage and get a picture and and all that. And, and I, th I think in reflection, like, like taking us up to like uh, maybe the end of June, I think reflecting on the whole thing, there were, there were a lot of negatives, obviously. Um, but I do think that there were some positives in the education world that, that we can draw from it. Um, you know, I used to own a computer company back in the day. And so I understand private business versus, you know, public businesses, which is what I do now. I, I just feel like schools sometimes are not run as businesses like they should, like they should be probably. And what this, and then before this, the, the great recession taught us, I think was you've got to really focus and, and look at what it takes to operate your business of a school district. And this pandemic has given us, you know, kind of that opportunity. And then also it's allowed the community, I think, to become even more involved in in how we support our children, which I'm I'm never never gonna uh, look away from that. I, I love having the community members involved in what we do too. So, seems like there was, especially right out of the shoot, obviously confusion, adaptation. You guys figured it out. You get through to you know your uh, your graduation ceremony. You get to the summer. I'm not sure an exhale is actually probably in order, but you're, you're at least shifting thinking, okay, now what's going to happen to the fall? So as you're getting information throughout the summer, or were you getting information out the summer, I guess, first may a question. And if so, what were you getting? And, you know, when did you start thinking, I mean, was it an immediate transition to planning for the fall or was there some kind of a cleanup to the, the previous school year that was needed during the summer before you could kind of focus on the fall? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I, I think for us and probably most schools, it's what do we think the students gained or lost during the, you know, from March to June academically, you know, in, in real terms, what, what do we think? And so 
students with special needs probably regressed more than they would have because um, you, you weren't able to deliver, especially in-person services like related services, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, those kinds of things. You weren't able to deliver them in, in person as much as you would have liked to. So those students probably have regressed, you know, uh, children who, who already were struggling, um, you know, didn't do a ton better in, in the virtual environment. And then you had some students that performed just fine. So um, to answer your question, you know, one of the pieces that, that we did differently so far in our professional development budget for the summer is we're, we're really focusing on a few things, focusing on uh, gap closing, you know, how, how do you teach teachers uh, when the students come back in the fall to quickly figure out where each child stands so that if you've got a student that's high performing in a class and a student that's low performing in a class, I don't want that high, high performing student to suffer because we have to spend a lot more time on a low performing student. And I don't want a low performing student to struggle because we're going to focus on the high performing students. So the, the gap closing piece for us is, is taking a look at data, you know, going, going backwards in a, in a child's history and, figuring out where might they have struggled so we can pick up those pieces and, and help them. And then the second piece is that socio-emotional learning piece. You know, um, a, a lot of students who, who struggle um, or come from homes that, that maybe aren't the homes that, uh, you know, the, the, the two-parent, everything's going great household, need a little extra boost from their teachers, their bus drivers, their coaches, their food service workers, and their custodians. Well, they missed all that uh, for three months. And so how do you reach them and, and, and help them to feel well? Those are the top two things that we were looking at this summer as we kick into the, as we kick into the fall. So that, that was kind of like the, the, the cleanup, if you will. Mm -hmm. And now the moving forward piece is, you know, how do you take all the information that we get? It's, it was, in one day, I got one over 140 pages of guidance from four different agencies and had to sift through all that. And at the same time, the governor was saying that we had to have our reopening plans uh, uploaded to uh, a portal by today. Now, I'm, I'm, this was on July 16th when we got all that information. So we had a very short turnaround to be able to, to get that done. And you know, I, one of the pieces I think that was most frustrating for all superintendents and probably parents too, is when you read the different guidance documents from the Centers for Disease Control or Department of Health or State Education Department or the governor's office or the office of the president for that matter, um, there's small words like must, should, highly recommend, recommend. And when you're talking about the same thing, like, uh, you know, students must wear masks. Well, that's, that's a lot different from students are, it's highly recommended that students should wear masks or students should wear masks. So which is it, you know, and that, that created in communities, you know, uh, that created some fracturing in school communities, because as one, if one school district was putting a plan together and it said students did not have to wear masks if they're being socially distanced and another school next door says that students are going to wear masks all the time, well, that, that creates a fracture. It's, it's not consistent. And not everything in every school district can be consistent, but what would have been nice would have been to have some consistent guidance, maybe from, maybe from one body. You know, we had all hoped that the governor was going to sit at the same table with the commissioner of education and kind of, you know, release a plan together. Uh, they did not. And then the interim commissioner resigned. So uh, a few days ago, so the, uh, you know, um, it wasn't that we were flying blind. It's just that it would have been nice to have, it, it probably would have saved us 
it probably would have saved us three or four days of work if we had had some direct information. Here's what you must do or here's what you should do and not change those small words. Understandable. Uh, Dr. Brown, how much engagement did you get from the community, from the parents and the students even, and what was the nature of the engagement that you were getting from them? Yeah, great question. Um, So we're in a community that has mixed computer access. Um, I would say to you that probably, uh, well, we did in our survey results, and you know, we received about 600, uh, re- 600 survey results. 12, 12% don't have any internet access in, in, in our community. And when I say no internet access, I mean really no internet access. And so one of the pieces that we tried to do was, you know, how can you keep everybody engaged? So for the, for the parents and students who had internet access, um, we were we were using Zoom once at least. The teachers were using Zoom every day, but as far as like the district, my job, um, I was interacting with the community, doing kind of town halls, virtual meetings, you know, a couple times a week, sending out. Our, our community prefers those robo calls that come out. A, a, um, so I was doing those at least once or twice a week just to keep them informed the entire way. And I can't I can't tell you the outpouring of support that we got from our community in terms of you know, what can we do to help? And, and it was, it was kind of weird because there's not much that they could do because we couldn't have anybody in the buildings. Um, You know, there were times where it was, it was our facilities director, our food service director and myself um, in the buildings. And that was it for a while, for a little while. And then we're able to bring back our custodians and then we, you know, we're doing the food. And so I have food service workers. So it was, it was hard, but I would tell you that, um, through our food distributions that we've been doing, um, you know, we're getting lines of lines of cars, and, but as they come through, they they're just saying thank you, how appreciate how appreciative they've been of about how transparent we've been, and and you know what can they do to help, and we're getting more and more and more of that. So to me, that engagement is worth more to us than it is to anything else that they they could have done. I would also say this: we reached out to them because um, we chose to do dinners for families. Um, the, the federal, federal requirement was that we had to provide breakfast to students who were in poverty. We chose to provide breakfast and lunches to, to any community member who needed it, and then dinners to, to families, whole families, not just the kids. Because we figure if you're a parent and you're hungry, you're not going to be your best parent when you're, I don't care if your kid's fed or not. So we, that cost us out of our pockets uh, about twenty thousand dollars to be able to to do dinner service for from March through the end of June, and we, we did reach out to the community and say, hey, if if you're able to help us with that, because we're not going to get money back from the government on the dinners, could you help us? And we had twenty thousand dollars in a we had twenty thousand dollars in I think three or four weeks, to, mm-hmm. and so so that program kind of ran itself, which was fantastic. And we're we are not a high wealth community. Um, whatsoever, not what, you know, what, so I have over 50% of our kids are free and reduced lunch. So um, to have that kind of outpouring and engagement, I thought was, was tremendous. Absolutely. Uh, and now shifting into, as we get ready for the fall and you and your team are working on it, I guess the same question, what kind of engagement did the community give you? What kind of input were you getting? Was it inundated? Was it more sparse? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So our community was, it's, I feel that I've got a greater responsibility here than maybe I've had in some other school communities. And, and what I mean by that is we have a very, uh, a very, very hardworking c- 
community. I, I would say we're, we're a hard day's work for a, for a uh, decent wage uh, community. And they really, really trust that the school is going to do the right thing for their children and for them. So we don't, we're, you know, we don't have um, a lot of entitled, what I would call entitled parents or things like that. We, we have just uh, people that really trust us to do our jobs. And sometimes I think that that creates a higher level of responsibility because, um, you know, when we, when we are creating our plans and all that, we know that what we come up with, uh, the majority of people are going to say, if, you know, if we have to sacrifice at home or whatever to make your plan work, we will. And, um, you know, I've been in other communities where the squeaky wheel is going to be there until they get what they want. And it kind of changes what the plan looks like. And uh, so this community is not like that. So the engagement that we get, you know, we held some town halls, let them know some general planning. And then we've just done a lot of frequently asked questions and, and questions and answers on Facebook or, or whatever, however people have wanted to be reached. We've reached them to, to answer questions and, they, and they've become engaged um, in that way. Um, and then in some cases, you know, we were fortunate, we ran an in-person, we are running an in-person extended school year program. So I, I actually have students in our buildings right now. I have had them all summer with staff and then, you know, parents. And, and so we've, we've tested safety protocols and that kind of thing in, in, a, in a fairly smaller environment, but we've been able to test them. And that has really helped us with our community to let them know what has worked, what hasn't worked, and, you know, what things are going to look like whole scale in the fall. And so you talked about the governor's portal. Um, can you walk us through that process? Like, what, what what are they asking you for there? Do you, uh, I mean, is it a blank slate that you're just submitting, uh, you know, like a Word document to or a PowerPoint presentation? Or is there, like, questions you have to fill out and answer appropriately to get the clearance from the governor's office? Yeah, so the, the clearance actually comes from the New York State Education Department. Okay. The directive to have it in by the 31st came from the government. So the the portal that we had to use, is, well, we had two portals. One, our plan had to be uploaded to the to the New York State Department of Health. And then number two, our plan had to be uploaded um, to the New York State Education Department. And I had mentioned earlier that on July 16th is kind of when we started getting some guidance. Well, there were 18 pages of assurances that we had to meet in, in our plan in, in order to um, be able to submit this plan by July 31st. So, um, you know, our school, I just posted the plan this morning on our school website because we completed it and submitted it. But, you know, 18 pages of assurances, you know, the district will, you know, make sure that insert thing here. You, you think of anything related to operating a school district or how you're going to manage visitors, how you're going to, um, how class how classes are going to run? What are your schedules going to look like? Um, how are you going to work with parents to make sure that their children are well before they come to school? If a kid gets sick while they're at school, or an employee for that matter gets sick while they're at school, you know how are you going to handle that? Um, you know all of those kinds of questions we had to have more than more than a paragraph for. I I joked yesterday. I felt like I was still in in college. I wrote I typed up uh, eleven pages of stuff yesterday and that was just for one section sounds uh involved um, that was awesome it was awesome yeah <laughs> well your practice i guess i don't know for uh some future <laughs> writing gig that you're uh gonna yeah. need so yeah. um so you've submitted your plan what, yep. what's the what's the first day of school first day of school for us is september 9th 
So what happens between now and then? You've planned your, you've like you get approval of your plan, or is just submitting the plan enough of an approval as long as you've met those assurances? Now that's an awesome question. And what normally happens is you submit the plan. The, it, it takes some time, and then they say your plan has been approved, and then you move forward. Okay. Um, in this particular case, as of right now, anyway, um, we submitted the plan, and about three hours later, we got. Uh, a message that said that the plan was um, the plan was accepted, and we should we should move forward with the plan unless we need unless we need to make changes to it. So that that's it's the first time since I've been a superintendent where I haven't gotten a, you know somebody's looked it over and has said you know this looks great or your plan is approved or whatever it it, it the plan was accepted and now move forward with the plan and so. We have a lot of work to do between now and the start of school because what you, you know, you sit in a room with people and uh, socially distanced, of course, and uh, you, um, uh, you, you kind of think about, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do a schedule and how, how will we cohort UPK to two students? Meaning how is a second grader going to stay in their same classroom all day? How are they going to eat in their classroom? Um, all of that stuff. And it sound, you, you talk it out, and it sounds like it's an easy thing, but then you think about a seven-year-old, uh, seven- or eight-year-old sitting there in their same room, or their instructor for that matter, uh, all day, six and a half hours. And then you, you have to think about, you know, what does that human element look like? And so that's where I think a lot of the planning has to come in. You know, where I'm a little concerned, frankly, is uh, the way the guidance document works is we're, we're, we're going to be asking parents every day to be involved in their child's health. And I mean, of course, as parents, we always do that, but meaning are they taking the child's temperature every day before they let them go out the door? Are they making sure that they don't have any symptoms of, of COVID, you know, before they send them out? And I, I don't know the answer. I, I can only control what I can control and I can't control that. So if, if a child gets up in the morning and mom's already at work, which happens, mom or dad's already at work and the house is empty, kid gets up, uh, hops on the bus, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. And and the parent sends me affirmation that they checked their child's health because they want the kid to come to school. I don't know that they did that. I I have to, I have to take them at their word that they did that, which is why we have to have a lot of protocols and and precautions, um, you know, in the buildings when, when they get here. Uh, Dr. Brown, how concerned are you about more changes coming from the state or federal guidances? Yeah, I'm pretty concerned because I, you know, schools in the South and the West open on Monday. And I just feel that if, if anything happens in those schools between now and the end of August, that's going to absolutely impact what guidance we've been getting. There, there's no question about it. It's, it's happened in the past. Um, you, can, you can take a look at school shootings or, or other things like that where um, protocols that, that, that are put in place in different states make their way here. Um, some are good and some are bad, I guess. But um, I, I definitely see, like, if there happens to be a COVID outbreak in a school or something, even if it's the adults, it may not be the kids. I mean, right. younger students especially are, are not great transmitters of the disease. You know, the most recent research that I read was that you know, kids 10 to 19 would have a, would have a higher chance than kids younger than that. And even that chance isn't as high as an adult. So the, it's probably going to happen in the adult population more than it's going to happen in the kid population. But even, but even if it does happen in the adult population, who's going to, 
you know, who's, who's going to teach those kids and all of that. So I, I think the governor, he has indicated that he's going to kind of give his thoughts on schools between August 3rd and August 8th. And I'm not going to be surprised if he extends that out another week to give schools in other states an opportunity to run for a little while and see what happens. Sure. We, and you just mentioned the, the transmission between young people and old people. So obviously the majority of the old people in the school are going to be the teachers. Have the teachers presented concerns to you about reopening? And if so, what were those? Well, it's interesting. Our, our oldest employees actually come from our, our, our bus drivers okay. because uh, for m- many of our bus drivers and many bus drivers around the country, it's a second or third uh, career for them. So you, you've got bus drivers that are range in age from, from pro- probably 50 years old all the way up to, you know, upper 70s. And what we've been seeing a, a trend uh, in, in several different counties is that bus drivers are resigning already because they sure. are afraid that they're going to be compromised and all of that. So that's your number one. Um, and, and the unique thing about school buses, I think, is if you see New York State Department of Transportation will not pass inspection for a bus if they put plexiglass or it's, it's actually Lexon. Plexiglass isn't, isn't approved because it's flammable. But uh, Lexon, of course, which is $35 more a sheet, uh, is approved. Um, you, you can't shield a driver from the rest of the kids by using that, that Lexon sheet. So it won't pass inspection. So they, so drivers will wear masks, masks and that kind of thing. But you also can't have hand sanitizer on a bus. That won't pass inspection either because it's flammable. So um, when, it's, when it's over 60% concentrate, which is what you need in order, they say, in order to remove the, the virus. So um, those are, that, that's, that's that population. And that was part of our plan, how you're going to handle transportation. But on the teacher side, yeah, you know, I've been very fortunate, knock on wood. My, my teachers have been excellent. Our employees have been great. You know, I, I think people that are high risk would be, we, we, I've got four or five teachers who are uh, pregnant and in later stages of pregnancy, I've, I've got, I do have some teachers who are um, cancer, they're recovering from cancer, recent cancer, you know, I, I'd put them in a, in a compromised class. Um, and so I'll have to work through with them, you know, if, if they don't want to return to school, and they've made no indication that they're not, but if, if, they're, if their physician said, hey, look, it, I don't want you going back to school, uh, what we're going to do with that? Uh as far as the uh, changes coming down from the state, any suggestions you would like to make to Governor Cuomo and his team as they're going to inevitably make some more about how it could be more tenable for you and the other superintendents? Well, I think he's got to have more upstate representation. I think he's got to have, I think he needs to have educators at the table. Um, when you look at his task forces and, and things that he has together, which I offered to be on, um, he, if you look, it's, it's highly downstate. It's, um, it, it's people. There are some superintendents that are on those, on those reopening committees and that kind of thing. But a lot of it is from higher education. I, I just don't think, and it, that's no disrespect to them whatsoever. I, I again, I, I offered to be on there and just wasn't selected. I just feel that um, there needs to be greater representation. Not too many. I'm not saying we should have too many cooks in the kitchen. That, that's not right either. You need to make decisions. But I also think you need to be able to, to get and accept feedback from various stakeholder groups. Um, I think he does. I think he. I think he does that in some ways. But I also think too, you know, going back over 20 years of being a superintendent, 
you know, a lot of times he dangles edu- education out there as the the thing that isn't doing their job or the, the people who aren't doing their jobs and that kind of thing. And, and that, that bothers me because I think when you're a leader, you can't call people out the way that sometimes he does. Just my own, that's my own personal view on it. I, sure. I've worked with him. I've, I, I've, you know, I, I've talked with him. I've been in meetings with him and all that kind of thing. And I'm not being disrespectful, but I think anytime you're, you're a leader, you have to be open, I think, to critique or feedback just as I am every single day, you know? And, um, I, I don't know. I, I just hope that <clears throat> because, you know, remember the next thing that's coming is going to be how to close that budget deficit in the state. So right. when we're all looking at spending a grillion extra dollars on PPE and everything else that we need to get schools open to help the economy to survive, there's going to be a, a point of diminishing returns. If he then says, okay, now we're going to cut each school state aid by 20%. So you need to cut, you know, 10 or 15, 20 teachers or whatever you're going to do then, then how do you continue to run school? So he, I think he's, yeah. I think he's got a, he's got a problem on his hands. Well, if there's anything the governor's shown he's good at, it's taking critique and criticism in stride. That might not <laughs> yes. be a hundred percent accurate. Anyways, uh, before we let you go, I was wondering any advice you'd offer to the parents or the students as we get up and running over uh, starting September 9th. I would just think it's, it's um, be flexible. <clears throat> and I, the one piece I always look at, and this is just me, you know, I, I, I shot, I've been to Walmart, I've been to Wegmans, I've been to restaurants, I've been outside the parks, I've golfed. Um, and you, you look at the different social distancing practices that are, that are being used in those various places. What schools are being asked to do is, is well above and beyond any of those places. So I think as a parent, if, if you're willing to take your child to a grocery store or a Walmart or the mall or wherever, and, and you're hesitant about letting your child come back to school, I think my response would be understanding that, you know, we're providing a safer environment than those other places that you're, that you're taking your children and to give us, a, to give us a chance because, you know, we're, we're going to do well. Okay. And so what did we miss? Did there, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure that, uh, was, uh, out there before we let you go? Well, I, I think too, you know, parents, the, the one piece we haven't talked about a lot are, are students, right? I, I think sometimes I, students can adapt to change quicker than adults. I've learned that over the sure. years. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that students deserve a voice. And there's, there's times where you have committee meetings and whatever, and you, you might get a couple of students involved and they might have a couple of things to say. And I, I just so value what kids have to say because, you know, they're the ones that are going to be living the rules that we make um, every single day. And so what I would say, if there's other educators that maybe listen to this podcast or parents for that matter, you know, one of the things that, that I'm, I'm doing is asking parents and everybody, you know, talk to your kids and, and ask your kids if they have any questions about what it's, what, what it's going to look like or whatever when they come back to school and get me those questions so I can have a frequently asked questions for kids. You know, I, I, it doesn't, I don't care if you're a kindergartner or a UPK or a 12th grader, you've probably, you're probably wondering what school's kind of going to kind of look like on a day-to-day basis for you. And so I would say, if you're an educator, don't forget about the students' voices. You know, they, they matter as much or more than the adults, I think. Dr. Brown, I want to thank you for your time. I may check back with you uh, maybe end of September and we'll see if, uh, how school is going if you're uh, up for that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I, I appreciate having the time today to talk and, uh, 
Yeah, I very much appreciate it. All right.